Well, we rejoin our series on 1 Corinthians 13. I'm looking at the subject of love. Let us pray that God would grant us ears to hear and hearts to receive. The Spirit is saying to the church this morning, let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we indeed stand amazed at your goodness, your glory, your grace to us. Indeed, Lord, you are worthy and we are unworthy. You are great, Lord, and greatly to be praised, and we are not. And so we come this morning praying that you would indeed mercifully and graciously, Lord, take us deeper, deeper into the glories that are Calvary. We might see the love that you have there for us, indescribable, incomparable, otherworldly love. Father, we continue to remember those who gather this morning with heavy hearts as a destruction that has raged this week through parts of our country, Lord, even our neighborhoods. We pray that your mercy would be particularly powerful to them this morning, that your grace would be abundant, and that your power would be on display, healing and comforting those who need it most. That even us, Lord, who enjoy the comforts of this place would be reminded that it's all by grace. And that we stand where we stand, not because we're worthy, but because you are. We give you glory, Lord. We give you honor. And we give you praise. So come now by your spirit and illuminate your word for us. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Open our ears that we might hear Jesus. And open our hearts, Lord, fresh and new. That we might receive the Christ according to your word. And that Jesus the Christ would become even a new Christ to us. This very hour, even this very moment. Oh, Father, this is our prayer. And we pray in his name. Amen. Um, I am convinced that the biggest obstacle, the most difficult barrier, and indeed the highest hurdle that we navigate or have to cross in demonstrating and even experiencing the love of God and even manifesting this love according to 1 Corinthians 13 is ourselves. And the reason that is, is because we're all selfish by nature. I mean, if we're honest this morning, if we would just be honest and look deeply into our hearts and our lives and the experiences that we have had and how we have interacted with people and family and friends, our neighbors and foes and co-workers and classmates, however we, wherever we find ourselves, if we would be honest this morning, we would have to admit that this, we are just selfish people. 
the most difficult barrier we have to cross in experiencing and giving the love that we've been discussing is really just ourselves. One of the most vivid memories I have uh, from my childhood, I mean, this is really vivid. I don't know why it's so vivid, but I, I remember it like it was yesterday. That I was somehow, some way, I got a hold of a dollar. In those days, that was not a common feat. <laughs> and I rushed to the store and I purchased a big bag of potato chips. Not a small bag. I mean one of those big bags that you always saw, but you always just lusted after because you could never afford to get one. I rushed to the store <clears throat> and purchased a large bag of potato chips. Put that bag into a brown bag and rushed back home. Went into my room, shut the door, sat on the floor. And ate that bag of potato chips one by one. You know why I did that? Because I did not want anybody to ask me for a potato chip. That's a vivid memory. I remember that like it was yesterday. And going over this portion of the book of 1 Corinthians, particularly in the verses that we will discuss this morning, it was brought home to me just how selfish we really are and how these acts of selfishness manifest themselves in so many various ways. Nothing, beloved, nothing keeps us from God like we do. Nothing keeps us from others like we do. Nothing keeps us from loving others like we do. The number one obstacle to showing biblical love is just our own selfishness. Own hearts. And the love of self is the greatest hindrance to becoming a Christian. And the love of self is the greatest hindrance in growing as a Christian. Is it any wonder that when Jesus calls people to discipleship, when he gives out his call to discipleship in, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, he begins with this word, these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. And we, we all know this. We all know because none of us are fond of selfish people. We abhor selfishness when we see it in others. We abhor it when we see it in our children. And yet we lack similar regret when we see it in ourselves. No one wants to be called selfish. If we would be honest this morning, we'd have to admit that much, if not most of our sin, is due to our own selfish behavior. You look through the scriptures, and in fact, some of the most sinful people in the Bible were that way because they were selfish. You could search the scripture, and you find it over and over and over again. I'll just give you a few Cain 
having saw and witnessed God receiving and accepting the sacrifice of his brother Abel, grew jealous and envious. And that caused him to rise up and kill his own brother. God comes to Cain and God says, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, God, it is, all I am concerned about is looking out for me. I'm not concerned where Cain is. How about Nabal? David and his men are running from Saul and Saul is on their trail seeking to kill them. And David comes across Nabal and his wife Abigail. And David and his men are hungry and they are thirsty and they need some food. And Nabal is a wealthy man who has much land and much resources. And David comes and asks if his men might refresh themselves with some food and some water from Nabal. And Nabal says in 2 Timothy, in 2 Samuel 25 and verse 11, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Selfish. But in case we are inclined to think that this is just something that happens to those who are hard of heart, who are wicked, who are outside of the people of God. Might I remind you? Might you consider this morning King David, whom the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. Looking. Looking, looking upon the wife of another man for his own selfish pleasures and desires. And then conspiring to have the man killed because he selfishly didn't want the public humiliation and exposure. Selfish. So we have a man after God's own heart committed adultery, lying conspiring, murder, all as a result of selfishness. Selfishness. Beloved, this is no light matter, this idea of selfishness. In fact, the Bible reminds us that this cold selfishness in hearts, the Bible reminds us, is a sign of the last days. It's a sign as the world waxes cold and moves further and further away from the things of God. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, heartless, slanderous. Without self-control, not loving good, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Beloved, an examination of the Bible, as we've said before, is ultimately an examination of ourselves. 
And when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and begin to examine what the Bible has to say about the love of God and the love that we ought to have for one another, this is never more clear. But to look into these scriptures is to begin the act of transforming grace because it reminds us just how much God has loved selfish human beings and how little those selfish human beings have loved each other. It's convicting. It's transforming. We see it all around us, don't we? From Charlie Sheen to Lady Gaga to Donald Trump. The world is full of those who are lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. But beyond those outside in the world, this morning the spirit of the Lord would have us to look at our own hearts and ask the question, not concerning those outside the four walls of this building, but those of us in the here, those who are hearing these words from this message. Are we lovers of self more than lovers of God? Do you see In these words, God's saying that biblical love is not so much love of self as it is love of others. In other words, to read here in 1 Corinthians 13 is to be reminded that love is selfless. Love is selfless. Our text this morning reminds us of this love that is selfless. And how does it describe this selflessness? Describes it in these terms. It says, love is not selfish. Love does not seek its own. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in and with the truth. Love is selfless because love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. It does not insist on its own way. And this is all, we're all prone to do this, beloved. And we are born into this. This desire for our own and our own way. We are prone to think of ourselves before we think of others. We are prone to believe that our way is better than others. Even in listening to the opinion of others, basically we're only tolerating them, share their opinion so that we can have opportunity to share ours. Because ultimately we think ours is better. The Bible here reminds us really that there is a way. There is two ways. There is my way and then there's the gospel way. My way is seeking my own. The gospel way is seeking the good of Christ and others. 
And these are the roles that are set before us every moment of every day as we seek to be people who love God and love our neighbors. We choose every moment of every day, my way or the the gospel way. And every time we choose our own way, we forget that the Bible says that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of destruction. Because my way always leads to destruction. This is the way of which Sinatra would sing, I did it. My way. It is the way of me. It is the way of myself. It is the way of mine. It is not the gospel way. It is the way of me. It is not the way of others. My, my way will tell you what you think. The gospel way says that I am interested in what you think. My way. Versus the gospel way. My way does what seems right in my own eyes. The gospel way does what's right in Christ's eyes. My way loves those who love me. The gospel way loves those who don't or even can't love me. My way looks for love in return. The gospel way is looking only for the glory and the honor that is found in Christ Jesus. My way is a self-serving way. But you do understand that the one who serves himself has a fool for a master. For it is not the way of life, but ultimately is the way of destruction. It is not the way of love. It is ultimately the way of hate. You see this in Christ Jesus. It's amazing that in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible reminds us that Christ went about doing good. Here is the master of all the universe come into the world and walks about the world. And the Bible says the testimony of Christ is that everywhere Christ went, Christ went doing good. Seeking the good of others, being a benefit to others, seeking to manifest the love of God by going about and doing good. So that Jesus himself could say in Mark in chapter 10, that the son of man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. The son of man did not come into the world seeking his own, but seeking the good and the love of others. Because that's what love is, beloved. Love does not seek its own. Love is not selfish. Love is not self-serving. It is others serving. 
It is others seeking. It is others delighting. The love of which we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians is not self-love. It's love of others. It's the love of Christ. Love is not self-seeking, but in the Bible says here that love is not irritable either. In other words, love is not easily provoked. It is not easily angered. It is not easily exasperated. You know, in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 16, there's a very interesting verse that says this. It says, the vexation of a fool is known, of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The vexation of a fool is known at once. In other words, as soon as you insult a fool, the fool insults back. But the prudent, the discerning, the wise is able in love to ignore an insult. Raise your hand if I'm talking about you. In other words... It is the fool who is easily frustrated. It is the fool who is easily exacerbated. And everybody knows it. Everyone knows it. Love is not picky, people. Love is not hard to please. That's what it means. And every little thing must be just right. This is an irritable person. The irritable person finds that others around them are on pins and needles. Always, always fearful they're going to say the wrong words or do the wrong thing. Because they know the vexation of a fool is known at once. Proverbs 29, 11. Bible said the fool gives full vent to his spirit. In other words, the foolish person wants to continually give you a piece of their mind, even when you're not asking for it and they can ill afford to give it. That's what it means to be irritable. That's what it means to be easily provoked. That's what it means to be easily angered. But the loving Christian is is holding her peace. She's keeping her counsel. She's always keeping her counsel, able to cherish the things of God in her heart, able to be slow to speak and slow to anger, able to restrain even her tongue. For the Christian who is not self-seeking here in this portion is showing us that this Christian who is not self-seeking is also demonstrating self-control. Able to control themselves. You know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to return evil for evil. Our tendency is to return slander for slander. Our tendency is to return provocation for provocation, cursing for cursing, sarcasm for sarcasm. You talk about my mom, I'm going to talk about yours even worse. 
we quick to come back and make biting remarks. Thinking this this week, and I just had to spend some time in silence this week. Because I know, I know I am chief among sinners in this regard. Just wake up one morning and it's just not a, bad, not a good day. And everybody around you is going to know that it's not a good day. Just irritable, picky. Somebody asks a question and all you have is sarcastic, irritable remarks. It's not loving, beloved. It's not. And there's no excuse for it, really. To have the love of Christ as poured down in your heart. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to have the power of the Holy Spirit living in your life. There is no excuse for it. You cannot just say, well, that's just the way I am. You cannot just say, well, people ought to get used to it. It's not love. It's not Christ. It's not a manifestation of the power of the Spirit in your life. It is not the fruit that the Spirit is bearing in the life of someone who has been regenerated and has been called by the name of Christ. Being irritable and easily frustrated, beloved, is not just a weakness, but it is a sin. It is a sin because it is a lack of love. You know, Christ was not irritable. I mean, here is the perfect son of God. Sinless perfection. Perfection personified. Impeccability in sandals. If anybody had a reason and a right to be frustrated, it was Jesus. And do you know that at the moment when Jesus should have been most frustrated, he was least? There, as he, is go, as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, with the weight of the sins of the world falling upon him, knowing where he is about to go, not only in body, but in soul, knowing the torment and the pain that he would have to endure, Knowing the agony of receiving the wrath of his father, his loving father, for your sins and mine. Knowing the cup that he was about to receive. He takes some of his disciples and he goes into the garden. And before he goes, he says, listen, Peter and fellas, this is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. I need you to pray and watch with me. He goes and prays for an hour. He comes back. And what does he find? Peter and the disciples sleeping. They're sleeping. He says, could you not watch just for an hour? I'm telling you guys, (laughs) this is tough. This is hard. I need you. 
Watch him pray. He goes again. Comes back and what, did he, what does he find? These disciples asleep at the will again. He repeats the words. Can you not just stay awake for one hour and pray with and for me? He goes away again. He comes back a third time and what does he find? Now by this time, what are you and I going to do? You good for nothing. <laughs> you sorry, lazy, good for nothing men. I'm going to die for you and you can't stay awake one hour. That's not Christ. He looks to Peter and he says, I understand the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My time has come and let us go. Oh, beloved. It's because he loved them. Christ is not irritable. He is gentle. And he's not only gentle with Peter and James and John, my beloved, he is gentle with you and me. For often have we fallen asleep at the will. How often have we neglected our obedience? How often have we neglected to stay on watch for our Lord? How often have we given in to the flesh? And he says to us, as he said to them, I understand your spirit is willing, but your flesh it's weak. That's gentleness, beloved. That's what love is. Love is not irritable. When those around us act in frustrating ways, they don't receive harsh remarks. They receive gentleness. That's, that's what love is. True love shows itself in not only being patient, But true love shows itself in lovingly controlling our tongue and our hearts. Love demonstrates itself in gentleness. Even when we have been wrong, love maintains self-control and it doesn't return venom for venom, anger for anger, frustration for frustration, but rather it gives Love. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable. And then the Bible says here that love is not resentful. Literally, it means, and some of your translations will have it, that love does not take into account a wrong suffering. The NIV says that love keeps no record of wrong, of being wronged. It does not count up wrongdoing. Now this, this here, this, this here, beloved, just, just may be as important and demonstrative an element of love as there is. 
For this is true love, that love does not count people's sins against them. Love does not keep a running tally. Love is not hiring accountants to make sure that we keep track of all of the transgressions and the records against it. It's not love. We saw before that love was not petty, but here we see that love is not penal. Love is not petty, but love also is not penal. It doesn't punish others for the wrong that they do. We often use the phrase, prayer after today, we won't use it anymore. We'll say, I forgive, but I won't forget. Biblical love not only forgives, but biblical love amazingly forgets. And if you're not willing to forget the confessed sins of others, why do you believe that God is going to forget yours? And this, beloved, is where the rubber really meets the road. Here, in this, these few words, we could just take our shoes off and hang and meditate upon these words for a long, long time. We demonstrate our lack of love and our willingness to remind people of their transgressions and their indiscretions. We don't forget them. We keep a long list and tally of them. Oh, we might keep it in our back pocket. We might keep it in our dresser drawer. But at that opportune moment, we are pleased and quick to pull them out. And tell you how many times I've sat down with couples. And they're going through some issue. And the conversation always turns to past transgressions. And he'll say, she just won't let me live down what I said. She's always throwing it up in my face. And she'll say, well, he won't ever let me forget what I did. Never getting over that hump. Never getting over that barrier. Never finding true love for each other. And ultimately, never truly experiencing the love of God. Because we refuse to forget. My beloved, biblically speaking, to forgive is to forget. Alexander Strauch said this, a loving person does not keep a private file of grievances that can be consulted and nursed whenever there is the possibility of a new slight. Here's what I would suggest to you this morning. If you are not willing to forget, don't even bother saying that you forgive. 
or the love of God and the forgiving of our sins is seen also and amazingly in his willingness to forget those sins. That is the power of love. You think about that. That is the power of love. The power of love is that it causes amnesia. It causes amnesia. Brother Bino, the love that a man has for a woman will cause him to forget every other woman that he ever knew if he really loved her. The power of love that a woman will have for a man is that she will forget every dream of every Prince Charming she ever thought about. She truly loves him. Now this, so powerful is love. So powerful is the love of God in the gospel that this love even gives God amnesia. The Bible says that he forgets our sin. It's amazing. beloved. This is amazing. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 19, he says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And Isaiah Chapter 43 and verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God will not remember our sins. It's not just something in the Old Testament, beloved. This is the manifestation of a God who sent Christ into the world to redeem us. The nature of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he not only forgives, but he forgets our sins. Hebrews chapter 8. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins No more, no more, no more. I will remember their sins, it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. In God, there's not only forgiveness, but there is also forgetfulness. So God in his love, does not hold our sins against us. If we are to love each other, and we must not hold other sins against us and against them as well. Beloved, don't get the idea that God has memory lapses. He'll literally forget your sins, he can't. How are you going to do that? But you know, what it means is that your sins are no longer a barrier to his relationship with you. Your sins doesn't keep him from getting close to you. Your sins doesn't keep him from embracing you. Your sins don't keep him from loving you. 
And God, no matter what anybody else does, God never, never, never throws your former sins in your face. He keeps no record of them. If you fall into sin, God doesn't keep a record of it. So then the next time you fall into sin, he says, see, I knew you were going to do that again. No, beloved, the blood of Jesus Christ wipes the slate clean. There is no record of it. So that when we get into eternity, do not believe for a moment that God is going to rehearse all of your sins for you, beloved. Because when he pulls out the slate, all he's going to see there is the righteousness of Christ. He says, you say, Lord, what about that sin I committed? What about that deed I done? What about that lack of love? What about that pride? And God looks and says, we have no record of that in heaven. There is no record of that here. All we know is Jesus and what he has done. And he did that. But we could stay and plant our feet here all morning. Do you understand the nature of the love that is being spoken of here? This is not worldly love. The world can forgive. The world just doesn't forget. And if you're only forgiving, all you're doing is what the world does. Forgetting is the supernatural, born again, regenerated manifestation of the love of God. I know it's hard. Somebody has offended you. Somebody has offended your child. Somebody has offended your parent. Somebody has offended a loved one. Of course it's hard. And that's why you've been changed. That's why you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why you have not only been born, but you have been born again. That's why the Christian life is not a natural one. It's a supernatural one. And that's why the love that we are to display, the world never understands never understands we got to move on and beloved love keeps no record of wrong but also love does not rejoice in wrongdoing isn't that interesting Keeps no record of wrong, but it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Interestingly, on the heels of saying that love holds no sin against another, it also said that love does not rejoice in the sin either. Wrongdoing, this idea of injustice, of iniquity, and sin. Love does not rejoice in it. It doesn't take it lightly. It doesn't dismiss it. 
The idea of this word here of wrongdoing, of not rejoicing in sin and iniquity is found for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Where the Bible says, the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from it. Depart from iniquity. Depart from injustice. Depart from sin. Love does not rejoice in sin. It doesn't rejoice in the sin of others. It's important for us to know that love does not overlook injustice. It does not give approval to sin. It does not excuse a lifestyle of iniquity, but it wants to show kindness and patience and yet not to excuse it. It doesn't rejoice in the sin of others. So those of us who love Christ and seek to love the world will call sin what sin is. So that Love does not clap and applaud a politician who gets up there and applauds and wants us to rejoice in abortion. Love doesn't do that. Love does not overlook racism. Love does not ignore homelessness. Love does not tolerate abuse or neglect. Love does not find perversion entertaining. So when the world seeks to normalize perversion, when Hugh Hefner tries to normalize a playboy lifestyle, love says, no, that is evil and that is wrong. Love does not normalize promiscuity. When love sees homelessness and and racism abounding in our world, then love calls evil, evil, and wrong, wrong. So that love is not a warm, fuzzy, mushy sentimentalism that ignores the wrongdoing and sins of this world that caused our Savior to come and having to die for those sins. Love doesn't ignore the sins in the world, but even more importantly, I would say that love doesn't ignore the sins in my own heart. Love doesn't ignore when I sin against you. Doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. I am amazed, beloved. I am amazed and I am often ashamed And how often we rejoice in our sins. We rejoice in. How often do we tell people about our sins and actually rejoice in them? We're quick to tell somebody how we told somebody off. We're quick to let people know how I didn't let them get the upper hand on me. We're quick to let people know how we behaved in unloving and sinful ways on the highway. We're quick to rejoice in our own sins and to let people know that nobody's going to speak to me like that and get away with it. Beloved, as adamant as we are about the sins of the world, we need to be equally and even more so adamant about our own 
sins. The love is not overlooking sin in the world, and love is not overlooking the sin in my own life. Love does not ignore it when I have sinned against you. I don't just tell you, get over it. I don't just tell you, understand it. This is the message of the gospel as well, because contrary to what some might believe, the gospel does not rejoice in your wrongdoing. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not rejoice in our wrongdoing. For the message of love in the gospel is not just that God is reconciling us in Christ, but also that God is disciplining us in Christ. The love that God shows to us is a love that not only has he reconciled us, but if he reconciles us, then he chastens us and he disciplines us because he is not going to rejoice in our own doom. Proverbs 13 and 24 most of us are very familiar with this verse whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him early. And as the Bible says that we are sons and daughters of God, know that God loves us and therefore he is not going to rejoice in our wrongdoing. But God in loving us is going to discipline us. It's going to correct us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's love, beloved. Love does not rejoice in the wrongdoing of its children so that God doesn't rejoice in our wrongdoing but lovingly applies the rod of correction, lovingly applies discipline, lovingly chastises us so that we might love the disciplining of the Lord, the Bible says. So we might love the chastisements of the Lord. Because he doesn't rejoice in our wrong doing love forgives sin love forgets sin but love does not overlook sin understand that love forgives sin love forgets sin but love doesn't overlook sin god did not overlook your sin what he did was send christ into the world that your sins might be forgiven and then forgotten But don't think for a moment that he overlooked them. He couldn't. He's too holy for that. He's too righteous for that. He's too loving for that. If you are here this morning and don't know the Lord in the pardon of your sins. If you have not come by faith to Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, do understand this, that you may be overlooking your sins and those close to you may be willing to overlook your sin, but God is not going to overlook your sins. Your sins must be paid for. Your sins must be punished. 
And I plead with you this morning, do not take that punishment upon yourself. Do not find yourself under the eternal damnation of God because you willingly and joyfully overlooked your sins in this world because God will expose them in the next. And you will pay for them. I say to you this morning, there is one who is willing to pay for them for you. There is one who is willing to take the punishment for your sins for you. There is one, namely Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says has become the propitiation for our sins. All you need to do is receive him. All you need to do is come to him by faith. And your sins will be placed on him, forgiven and forgotten. That is the nature of God's love. That is the nature of the love that we have for each other. Doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. Does not seek its own. And then what does it do? Well, the Bible says that it rejoices in the truth. This love rejoices with the truth. And this is what separates the love of God from the love of the world. This idea of love that we're looking here in 1 Corinthians 13, this agape love, what separates the love that that is here in the Bible from the love in the world is that this love has governance. This love is governed by the truth. You know, the Bible consistently puts truth and love together, each guiding the other, each guiding the other. So it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 that we are to speak the truth in love. Not just be loving, but also truthful, but not just be truthful, but also loving. Speaking the truth in love. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, it it reminds us that we have loved the truth unto salvation. That our salvation is based on the fact that we have heard and embraced the truth, that we have loved it and we are saved. Love. Speak the truth in love. Love the truth unto our salvation. In 1 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 22, we are reminded that our obedience to the truth should be bearing the fruit of love within the body of community, of the believers. That's how we are loving each other. I am loving you because I am obeying the truth. I am seeking to obey the revealed truth of God and in obedience to the revealed truth of God, that is bearing the fruit of love in my life of which I am living it out amongst the body of believers. But no one, no one, no one puts the two together any more than the Apostle John does, often referred to as the Apostle of Love. John could also be referred to as the Apostle of Truth. 
For over and over again in his writings, he is making truth and love dependent, cooperative with one another. First John chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Deed and in truth. Not just in word, but in deed. He says in 3 John 4 that he had no greater joy than this, that to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That was his joy. That the people of God would be walking in truth. And what is truth? Well, John told us what truth was. For over and over again, John reminded us the truth is Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14, John says that Christ is full of truth. In verse 17, he reminds us that that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8 and verse 46, we are reminded that Christ always spoke the truth. In John chapter 18 and verse 37, we are reminded that to listen to Christ is to bear witness to the truth. And in John 14 and verse 6, Jesus himself says that I am the truth. This is, beloved, this is why we don't seek our own, because we seek Christ, because we seek truth. This is why we don't rejoice in wrongdoing, because we rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in truth. This is why we don't need to be irritable. This is why we don't need to be bitter. This is why, beloved, we do not rejoice in the wrongs of our life, but rather we have love for Christ. We rejoice in Christ. Here is the beauty, the love that the Bible is speaking of here. I don't need to seek my own. Because I find a superior rejoicing, not in me, but in Christ. I don't need to be irritable and resentful toward you because in Christ, I have all my satisfaction. I can willingly admit to my wrongdoing and point out my sins. Because I know that ultimately my joy is in Jesus. The world's love is a self-gratifying love that leads to an emptiness, that leads to a regret. But the gospel love is a self-denying and joy-producing love. You know why it produces joy? Because it brings us closer to Jesus. When you love like this, you'll see more of Christ. When you love like this, you'll get more of Christ. Because when we love like this, we become more like Christ. Joy seeking in my own? No. I'm seeking my joy in Christ. 
Joy in getting my own way? No. Joy in getting Christ. Joy in knowing my own truth? No. Joy in knowing the truth of Christ. Joy in you knowing how amazingly good I am? No. Joy in you coming to know just how amazingly good Christ is. That's where I get my joy. Joy in his glory. Joy in his story. Joy in his truth. That's love, beloved. That's love. That is love. Loving Christ. Loving each other. I was struck. I was, I was, I was struck this week with the tragedies that happen just west of us and north of us. And I was amazed at some of the stories that came out and are trickling out little by little. I heard of a story of a, of a man who was in the house with his daughter And as the house collapsed, he threw himself over his daughter. And when they dug them out, the daughter was alive. I kept thinking, Lord, that is love not seeking its own. Then I thought, that is Christ. That is Christ throwing himself over us every moment of every day. What little thing is it for us to love each other when we realize just how much God has loved us in Christ Jesus. Oh, beloved, this is love that we would love God and that we would love each other for Christ's sake. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, amazingly, amazingly, gloriously, you have loved us with an everlasting love in Christ Jesus and given us a joy that the world doesn't understand that the world truly desires and the world can't take away. We thank you for the, for the ability to rejoice in Christ Jesus, for the ability to rejoice in the truth. We thank you this, this morning for the love. We pray that we would be people who love as well. Convict us this morning of our sin. Convict us of our lack of love. Remind us that you have loved us, that you have called us to love each other. Thank you for these who are gathered here, but mostly thank you for Christ. Might his love flow from heart to heart in this place, this day. We pray in Jesus' name.